And there we go. We're back again for another episode of Friday Night Counter-Attack. Uh, again, we've got another guest on the show. Today, we've got Tony Sharkey from the Football Transfer Forum. So, Tony, thank you very much for joining us today. How have you been? Yeah, I'm good, Hamza. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the next, what, 40 minutes, hours chat, really. You know, I'm getting a lot of chat about football on webinars, on Zooms, but not much in person. So yep. here we are again, another sort of Zoom call, a podcast, um, but happy days. No, I'm glad to hear that. Salem, how you been? Have you had a good week? Yeah, it's been quite good. It's been, I'd say, less stressful than the weeks before. So it's onwards and upwards, I think. I can see you're wearing that Inter Batley logo. For, you've got new merchandise for your new Sunday League club. Yeah, the, the merch dropped like about, about a week or two ago. So I'm just repping the merch now. It's waiting for that game time to come back as well. It's been a good week as well in terms of football, but it's been a tough week for Man United fans seeing us draw to West Brom. It's been a tough week for Aston Villa to draw to Brighton. And it's probably even tougher for Tony being a Leeds United fan after yesterday's result against Arsenal. But it's, it's one of those things that because we're getting so much football every now and then, you always forget the last result because there's always another game coming along. That's more or less it with the Premier League at the moment. Man City, I feel like are going to do really well. Tony, how, how are you doing today? Yeah, I've had a, a, a really busy week. I mean, I, I'm a football agent first and foremost. I have been for 18, nearly 19 years now. Uh, I was one of the people who passed. There used to be, in the football agent business, there used to be an exam, and I passed mine in, in 2002. So I've been a football agent for a long time. I've sort of diversified. I, I, I also run uh, something called Football Transfer Forum, which is basically, it started out uh, in 2017. It's a networking event that we do in person. So it's a live sort of conference the speakers, there's opportunities to network in the football industry. So the, the, the audience for the Football Transfer Forum is people in football clubs in recruitment. So like chief scouts, sporting directors, um, local scouts, European scouts, and then agents and also there's lots of companies who are in that sort of space, you know, the, the companies that are looking at uh, stats and data in football. There's some other companies as well. We've, we, we get quite a lot of companies coming along to the events. So that's been good. You know, I've really enjoyed sort of starting up a, a sort of side hustle, if you like, um, with the football transfer forum as alongside me, regular football agent business. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear because a lot of businesses and a lot of sub-industries in the football industry haven't really adapted as well. And a lot of people haven't adapted really well as well. Like um, over the last 12 months due to the pandemic, a lot of people have gone from actual scouting to video scouting. And personally, yeah. from my point of view, I've seen a lot of people do really good at scouting. But that's probably because I'm looking at the younger scouts and the younger demographic of scouts. But I'm glad to yeah. hear that everything's going well from your side and you've adapted the business really well as well. So that's really nice ha to hear. Hamza, it's a good point you make about the scouts because, you know, I've seen, I know a lot of scouts and I've seen clubs, you know, first of all, in the very early stages of the pandemic, they were furloughed. There was no games to go to. And when you're a scout who's been used to going to two or three matches a week and some of the, you know, the full-time chief scouts are at a match almost every day, it's a real change in your circumstances and it can be hard to, you know, if you're not massively great on technology, it can be hard to switch from live scouting to video scouting. Um, and then a lot of them were just laid off in the summer. You know, there was a lot of, there's a lot of scouts out of work there. They've been really hit hard and it's, you know, there is some video scouting work, but that's, you know, few and far between. So there's been a real contraction in the scouting sort of uh, employment I think from my point of view, the Football Transfer Forum, um, we'd planned a big event at the Etihad Stadium, Man City's home, for the 1st of May in yep. 2020. And um, the planning, the event was shaping up really, really well. We were strong ticket sales, you know, plenty of people, good people coming. We had all our speakers lined up. And then we had, obviously, the lockdown. We, we kept... We postponed it quite early, and then we thought, oh, well, we'll do it in summer, then we'll do it in autumn, then, and we're still here, and it's February now, and obviously we, you know, we just shelved it. But 
from that, I, I decided it was one of my, um, one of the guys who works on the football transfer forum. Uh, he's called Guy Branston. Uh, he's the loan manager at Leicester City. He just said, why don't we do a webinar on the day it was meant to be, the, the day of the forum. We did a webinar. It was really popular. So we've just continued just doing online webinars and, and stuff like that. And it's been really good. And do you still find the same impact coming through for the Football Transfer Forum as well? Like you used to have people come in face to face with you and you get to have your guest speakers on stage. And um, so yeah. little things like just having the guest speakers on a Zoom call. Has that been, has that had the same impact? Is it probably better because you can get a wider audience and you can probably reach out to a bit more people as opposed to coming yeah. through to the local um, Etihad Stadium? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a worldwide, you know, I mean, we do it, the it's 10.30 on a morning on a thir- the first Thursday of each month. So we can only get in that time zone, but we get people from all over the place come uh, onto the webinars and, and also the speakers are more accessible. So where before we're looking for three speakers for our, our conference day to come, to stay, to, to, to deliver their speech. Now it's just, on the on the webinar that can be in their own homes they're easier to get to and i notice you know there's a lot more podcasts webinars zooms meetings groups being created and there's a you know people are quite happy just like tonight you know to come out and to speak about football and you know they can do it it only takes them an hour from their home or office or whatever whereas you know the live events it's a full day Obviously, it's more than the full day for me organizing it as well. Definitely. No, it was like that with me as well. Like when going to uh, previously, the PFSA would do courses in a hotel in Manchester and you'd have to go to Manchester. But when I did mine in the summer during the pandemic, there was a lot of worldwide um, participants coming on. And it was easier for me to then learn about football from other countries and from other continents and how people uh, perceive football and football scouting there as well. So that's why I found it quite fascinating. And ever since um, this third lockdown, Salim and I have had really positive guests coming on recently. And it's been really nice to actually talk to them. We've had like a director of football in Canada. We've had a wow. scout. Wow. We've had a, um, had a referee as well who did academy football as well. So we've got you to add to that portfolio as well, which is really nice. And it's really promising um, just to learn a bit more about it going forward as well. Um, but Tony, in terms of your football transfer forum going through at the moment, um, what kind of successes have you had recently in terms of the pandemic and having your Zoom calls and having more interactive um, conversations online as opposed to face-to-face conversations? Yeah, well, we've we've got a little bit better using the chat and, you know, we have Q&A on, on the football transfer forum. But I think it's the quality of guests. You know, we, we had... Uh, Les Ferd- I'll, I'll drop some names here. We had Les Ferdinand, QPR director of football, as one of our guests. We've had Steve Walsh, and Steve was the sporting director of Leicester when they won the Premier League. He's, yep. He was explaining about the Mares and Kante signings. Um, Andy Scott of Swansea, you know. So we've had some really, really good guests, and and I think people like to see behind the curtain of the football industry, you know. It's, it's yeah. a bit of a show, I think. I always think in, in terms of a show, you know, you you go to a theatre and you watch a play or watch an, whatever, and you go to a football stadium and you watch a 90-minute a play or theatre. I mean, the theatre of dreams or whatever from, from, <laughs> from your Man United fans. But it's a show, but I think there's more and more people want to see behind the curtain and see what happens in the background and what happens, what do agents do? How do the players you know, keep themselves right, how to, you know, there's so much there that people want to know. And and I think, you know, the, this, the, the search for knowledge and learning, you know, I think a lot of people have, have chosen in this pandemic is, look, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be looking at these four walls. So what am I going to do? I'm going to learn and I'm going to find out about something that interests me. And it doesn't have to be football. It just happens that we're talking about football and that's my sort of area of business but it's great that people from all over the world and, and, and they do, I think, you know, one of the probably un, un, uh, unconscious advantages of the Premier League is that the world's eyes are on our little island as a centre of the best football in the world, the, the biggest, you know, football in the world. 
the most well-financed football in the world. So that gives us guys who are here and talking about football, you know, other extra people who want to come in and have a little look. That's exactly what it was like for me, because with me and my four walls in this lockdown, I'm on, fur <laughs> I'm on furlough at the moment. And I'm yeah. just waiting for me to go back out and uh, start scouting some more games as well. But like I said previously, it's a lot more easy for me to go from video scouting to opposition scouting to um, literally just player scouting. So that's yeah. why I was quite fascinated to learn a bit more about another side of football. So the agent side of football, what an agent does and um, how they do it. And that's what I was yeah. just quite curious to know, like, how have you found going from like a normal football agent doing the old school ways of going through it to the football transfer forum as well? So I'm, just well, quite, I'm quite curious about that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of myths about what football agents actually do out there, you know, and I, and I probably don't very comfortably fit into that football agent box because I, I left school at 16 um, I went to Leeds United, which was the team I supported when I was a kid. I'd been going down there for, from about 14 during the sort of Easter and Christmas holidays when I was off school. Yeah. And then I left school at 16 and signed for Leeds United. And, and that was all I really wanted to be. It was a footballer, you know. So I've had a little bit of experience in, in the football industry as a player. And then I didn't make the grade as many, many, you know, I got released when I was 19, which was a real devastating experience. And, and a lot of young men uh, and, and increasingly young women will, you know, be released from football clubs. And that's quite a hard thing to, to, to cope with. Definitely. And then I just went, I did a PE degree. I didn't really want to be a PE teacher, but I did a PE degree because I didn't know what else to do. I worked for local authorities and then sort of my mid thirties, I decided, look, I want to get back into the football business. What is it I can do? And I just chose to try and get into the agenting business. Um, I'd, I'd coached, I'd scouted, I'd played. So I had a few sort of strings to me bow. You had um, the triple threat, really. You did everything you can <laughs> do at, at that age. Yeah, I suppose so. I So I had a bit of, you know, and, and one of the things that it's, you know, football agency work is not all about transfers and deals. There's a lot of pers interpersonal relationship and mentoring and helping your player and, and also trying to, it's it's quite a tough business as I'm, I'm sure you can appreciate. And there's, you know, there's times when the club doesn't want the player there's times when the player doesn't want to be at the club. There's times when, you know, you have your own personal problems as a player. Um, and, and, you know, all of that needs to be navigated through if you're going to be a success. Because any of those things, you know, you might have an injury. I sort of call them the critical periods in a, in a, in a person's career. And they can come up if you drop from a team or not wanted by a club if you're released, if you're injured, if you have your own personal problems, you know, and these are important moments for any player and, and, a, and a good agent can help them through those critical periods. So in terms of when you were an agent, did you have many clients under your in your portfolio, under your umbrella? Yeah, well, what I started to do, uh, Hamza, is when I, when I first started, I was sending a lot of players from the northeast where I'm based to any club on trial, you know, to play games and just to try and get as many young players as I could signed up by clubs. And I was quite successful at that. I had quite a few at different clubs in the north and, and as far down as West, West Brom was an interesting one. I had a few players at West Brom when I first started. Okay. But then I also um, reached out to agents from across Europe and I was helping, I was finding some you know, good results in helping them bring their players into the UK. Yeah. So I've done I've done a bit of that as well as um, looking after young players in the UK. Would that still be the same because of Brexit coming along? Because we've we've seen recently that a lot of players nowadays who are coming from Europe or coming from outside of Europe via Europe. So like uh, Ahmad Diallo was a prime example for Man United. He's a player that's played in Europe for Italy, but he's got a an Ivory Coast. Uh, citizenship as well but because it's still got a link to Italy it, it wouldn't have been accepted under these new EU terms but he got it through eventually 
So I'm just curious, was that something that you had to deal with as well? Was that more like a, a, a local authority or a national authority to deal with transfers coming no, across? That's just kicked in in January. Obviously, we, we Brexit happened in January, was the sort of cut-off date, if you like. Uh, the FA produced a 36-page document on governing body endorsement, the new rules and regs for people, whether you're in the EU or whether you're outside the EU. And it was really that the agents, the football agents and the clubs had to pretty much overnight, I mean, I think it was about a month's warning before the January transfer window, had to get a heads round what do these actually mean for us as people who are trying to do deals, trying to do transfers. And it was quite a confusing picture, but added into that, we had a very late closing of a transfer window with the pandemic. We had clubs facing massive financial problems. So the, the January window wasn't a great, I mean, you know, I knew it was going to be quiet. I didn't expect it to be as quiet as it was. There was only a few major, major signings. I think Morgan Sanson came from Marseille to Aston Villa for maybe 15. Yeah. The, the deal you talk about was done in the summer and he came in the January. Yeah, you're um, right. And then there was, I think Brighton signed a player from... They signed Moises Saicedo. From, yeah, yeah, from Ecuador. And he yeah. he obviously was eligible under the new governing body endorsement rules, probably on his national team caps. Yeah. So so those th- those new criteria to get a work permit to play in the UK, you know, if, if you're a top international player from a, a country in the top 50 in FIFA rankings and you're playing regularly or you're playing in a top five league, you know, like the Bundesliga, Serie A, La Liga, uh, Ligue 1 in France and you're playing regularly you won't have a problem coming to the UK whether you're EU or non-EU whereas if if you're coming from a smaller league or a country that's outside the top 50 in FIFA rankings you might find it difficult but also they've actually put in place a, a way that young players with real potential can come into the UK and, and get a work permit to play. Still, it's still unfolding. It's still unfolding because, you know, like I said, we only got the this 36-page document uh, in early, sort of late December, early Jan, that type of time. Yeah, because it's not something that, like, someone outside of that bubble can really learn because it's not something you can find on BBC News or Sky Sports News or anything like that. So it's always something that... You have to try and figure out and learn from other people. So I do appreciate you talking us through how that's yeah. going to kind of go as I mean, well. I, I had a I had a Zoom call today with a company based in Holland who have a, a data and scouting platform and they've built a GBE endorsement product into their platform so that clubs and agents can find out with a click of a, a mouse whether a, a particular player is eligible or not to get a UK work permit. I mean, that goes, you know, that's just for the non-EU and, and EU players, really. But, you know, if you've got a British passport and you're working here, you shouldn't have a problem. And, and the same applies to Ireland as well. But it's just, it's just, again, one of those things that when you're, there's so much to go through in this football industry at the moment, everything moves at a rapid pace and, yeah. That's something that we've learned over the last few weeks of being in lockdown. Referee Referees change at a growing pace. Coaching changes at a rapid pace. And it's just about, well, this is a government a government initiative that football now has to catch up with and they have to learn about it in the best way possible. Do, do you know, just talking generally though, Hamza, it's like, I think football, the, the changes that have happened in the last 18 months, two years, you know, whether it's the changes with VAR, the, the way that they do the offsides, what the referees have to do. You know, there's been, I think there's been too many changes too soon. And I think through in the pandemic and all the different changes to the leagues and the salary cap that was in place in League One and League Two, and then Brexit, you know, there's been change upon change upon change. And I think what we probably need is a bit of a, a bit of a period of stability so that we all can you know, we can refine any of the rules that need refining and we can just get a little bit more clarity, I think, just generally right across the game. Because at the moment, you know, you you have managers and head coaches 
who are feeling so passionately aggrieved for certain reasons. And, you know, that has got to improve, hasn't it? You know, and it, it, these people are the experts. They know what, what they're talking about. They know the game. And if they're not feeling it and they're not understanding or, or seeing why the rules are like they are or decisions that have been made, there's got to be something fundamentally wrong. And I think I think that just goes to, to the point of there's been too much change and it's not been massively well thought out, some of it. It's been too much too soon and it's been overwhelming yeah. for a lot of people, the players, even the, um, the whole death threat with Mike Dean just literally following letters by the law, sending someone off because he was the last man or he was an intentional tackle. It's all it's all up in the air, really. And it's all awful to see that people are literally... That's literally how fans are going about things these days by online abuse or threatening managers or racially abusing players in their social yeah. media, which is awful because we're not seeing fans in stadiums. We're not seeing five subs anymore like we did at the end of the Premier League last season or any water breaks yeah. or anything like that. So it's all change and it's all with the whole like I remember just every time we watch Sky Sports and like Gary Neville Carragher's commentating co-commentating you'll hear them say oh one of these days this, the linesman's flag is going to go up too late and someone's going to get injured it's going to happen eventually you know they're right because they're in yeah. the game and they've played the game but there's only so much we can do as fans and as people that work in the football industry just on the sidelines but we literally have to wait for the authorities to actually do something properly and so actually yeah. I mean, you know, the when when fans are in the stadium, they're often venting as well. They're often, you know, shouting. They can be cheering on the team one minute and then they can be berating the ref the next minute, but they're getting it off the chests in the terraces, aren't they? Yeah. This, you know, this online abuse and, and doing, you know, horrendous things and sending horrendous messages to people, that cannot be right in any shape or form. And that's... You know, we're hearing so many stories about that. And, you know, I'm trying to not not play devil's advocate, but people are sat at home with vent-up feelings and, and they're not feeling great. And that's coming out as this bile that gets spilled on online abuse and all the rest of it. And that can't be good for anybody, can it? No, it's definitely impacted so many people's mental health and their mental well-being and their literally just their psychological abilities as well. But again, seeing people that obviously think you know what a player's made a football mistake it's cost my team points or it's conceded a goal i personally don't see how racial abuse is acceptable in any way let alone football society but i'm really happy that the government have actually taken it to the social media companies to say we want to get these people banned we want to get these people um authorized as well that's something that we discussed in a previous podcast uh late last year as well to get people verified when they actually use social media like when we when we're using LinkedIn, you can see my first name, second name, and vice versa. You can see what we've done, but we're not going to be effing and blinding that football players for making a mistake. And I find again, I find that extraordinary. And it's the same with Brentford as well. Recently, they've stopped taking the knee at their pre kickoff. You know when players are taking the knee for the. There's a few um, clubs who've decided not to do that, isn't there? Yeah. So it's just, there's all these little changes and they all, like you said, they all mount up because loads of little changes are happening so quick, so soon. And some of them are really big changes that we've seen in football. The whole referees, VAR, they actually get to go to the monitor this season. But again, what's yeah. going to happen next season if it's going to change all over again? Are they going to scrap a yeah. few of these ideas? Are they going to keep them going? Oh, sorry. I, I just thought I'd add something. I thought uh, what Tony said was quite right, saying like before people would just sort of like just put the abuse out on the pitch. Obviously, it wasn't like as bad as the kind of stuff that we're getting on social media now, because pretty much after every single game, you, you're guaranteed, like, A, the referee's going to get abused, like, no matter what's happened. Because yeah. either way, one team's going to feel aggrieved. Second thing is some player's going to get racially abused for literally no reason whatsoever. And it's, yeah. like, it's pretty much guaranteed. But, I mean, I, well, I, well, I was a season ticket holder. I still probably would be if there wasn't a pandemic now. But I've never, ever come across sort of chance and stuff or sort of abuse as bad as the stuff that we're reading online yeah it's, I it's agree. never never yeah. i've never witnessed something even where, anywhere where near all the sound villa oh villa all right cool cool yeah so you, a, well, a big club yeah no no i've good yeah yeah I, I had some dealings with dean smith when he was at brentford and he's very very good manager you've got there isn't it and, and i actually one of my favorite players is ollie watkins who's a fantastic yeah. player 
he's a real good player. Yeah, going from Exeter. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I mean, he's he's quite good. He's a good like uh, people's person. Actually, we went Very to good. sort of just yeah. before the lockdown. Uh, yeah. We did like an evening with Dean Smith at Villa Park. It was and we oh, were just wow. sort of talking about his uh, his life and stuff. And it was yeah. before the cup final. But yeah, he was such a really like down to earth person. Like he's a lovely guy. Know. Yeah, he's got a really good yeah. head coach there. I mean, I, I when I mean just talked about Villa and the football. I was like, you know, he's got Jack Grealish, and then he signs Ross Barkley. How are they going to play together? What's going to happen? And he's he's gelled them together brilliantly, hasn't he? You know, and he, yeah. I didn't, I, I I was doubting him because I was thinking, wow, two two of them really creative guys on the pitch. How's that going to work? You know, <laughs> is it going to be four three every week? <laughs> what what's going to happen? But he's done really no, well no. with it. Yeah, he's he's found a really good balance. I think I think people mm. like some of our fans did sort of turn on him last season, but you have to remember the sort of situation we were in. Like we you know we just signed like twelve players, but that yeah. was also because like a lot of contracts were ending at the end of the championship. The thing yeah. was, we actually got promoted sooner than we were meant to. Because, uh, so, <laughs> no, no, so, so don't don't, so don't send the, us up this year. Can we wait another year in the championship? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. I mean, the, the the owners, the new owners, budgeted for us to sort of go up after two seasons, so we'd be able to sort of like, yeah. sort of yeah. recycle some of the playing staff that we had because we had a lot of like older players like Yedinak, Whelan, Adoma. They were sort of more yeah. towards the end of their careers, yeah. And that's basically what happened. But he meant we get to keep keep Grealish. We signed Mings, obviously. But no, also talking about Brentford, uh, I mean, from sort of an outsider looking in, as well, they're clearly doing something right in terms of transfers. Brentford, you know, they're, they're a really um, well-organised, intelligent. They, they sort of think outside the box a little bit as well. But, you know, I mean, they, they did scrap the academy, but they're in London and they're in a very competitive marketplace in London for young players. Mm. But they scrapped the academy and, and brought in the B team, and then when they, you know, they're, they're pretty shrewd on recruitment, and they yeah. do use some data and stats, but they also use eyes on the ground, and and they bring in some really good quality players at, at very cheap prices. And we talk about Ollie Watkins, you know, I think he was less than two million pounds from Exeter, yeah. all in all. But when it's not just about the scouting and scouting and recruitment that they do really well, they improve the players when they get there. So when you come in the door at Brentford as a player, you'll be coached really well. Yeah. You'll be fitter than you've ever been. They have like sleep therapists. They have psychologists, sports psychologists. The work on. I mean, they used to have a set piece coach. I don't know whether he's still there or there's another one. But the work on a lot of aspects of your game, so you're going to improve as a player. And and if you look at their system, it's pretty much this is how we play. We don't mess around with changing of system that much. It's basically there's a couple of systems that we play, and this is what we try to achieve. And let's just do it. One of the guys said to me from the club, we don't really have a plan B. It's just do plan A better. And I thought that was quite a nice little adage really you know just do plan a better and that's you've seen them season on season on season on season and last year they just missed out on the playoffs yeah. you know in the final with a, a long range brilliant finish from that Joe Bryan I would question yeah. a little bit where the keeper was positioned but you know they just lost out in the, on the last game of the, the last bit of the season Hopefully, I'd like to see them in the Premier League because I think they'll, you know, there'll be a bit of a breath of fresh air as well, and and hopefully they can get automatic promotion. Yeah, I was just going to add sort of a few bits on that. So I think they should have got automatic, but I think they drew or lost on the final game of the season, something, and then obviously they went to the playoffs. But yeah. the system they've got in place, sorry, uh, just in terms of coaching and stuff, like they've got Ivan Tony in, and his return is sort of better than Watkins, like. Pretty much a ready-made replacement there. They've sort of they're, they're used to losing their best player pretty much every season. We've seen it, Malpe, Ben Rama. You know, well, Scott Hogan probably wasn't that good for us, but he was still one of their better players. <laughs> I've got but a question for of... you, Sal. I've got a question for you. Is Ollie Watkins going to be more expensive? Uh, is Ivan Tony going to be more expensive than Ollie Watkins if 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 he gets bought by a Premier League team? 
I think the thing about Watkins is that it's not just his goal scoring, it's sort of his overall game. But I've not seen much of Ivan Tony to compare. But from what I've seen at Villa, like he's he he always gets in the positions to score. He's been unlucky this season. He's got like he's racked up quite a high XG, if anything. But the work he does in terms of like you know pressing from the front, it sort of sets the tone for the whole team. Um, Ivan Tony, the the difference this year with them is that I think they'll get automatic. Well, I hope they do, and I think they should be able to keep hold of him. That's that's probably what I could say. There's a great great change from him at Newcastle as well, because that's where he, he actually came through at Newcastle. So I'm really happy that he wasn't under a player that just went down the leagues and stayed there. He's actually bringing them up in a way. Do you know the comedian Alan Carr? Yeah. Yeah. Well, his dad, Graham Carr, was chief scout of Newcastle. He was the one who signed Ivan Tony all them years ago. Um, I think it was 900,000 from Northampton. And then he's been out and he's been on loan. And I think, I don't know, they must have released him a couple of seasons ago, maybe. I don't know. But he's obviously come back and he's going to end up in the Premier League one way or the other, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, a bit like Patrick Bamford in the way. He's been loaned out and been there, done that in the in the lower yeah. leagues when he was loaned yeah. at Chelsea and he's done it with Leeds yeah. and he helped bring them up as well. Yeah. So it's I just another Dean one Smith of those will, stories. I think Dean Smith will be... I like um, Josh De Silva as well at Brentford and he's a really mm. good player. And I think Dean Smith will, will know a little bit of the... he got the inside track on... Yeah. on yeah, Brentford are your feeder club, aren't they, with Esri Conza? Yeah, and I was just going to say, like, we should sort of, I mean, if they don't get promoted, we should sort of, like, make some sort of link with them because I'm more than happy to send some of the kids out there to get experience. Yeah. But yeah, even sort of the system they play, like you said, they've just got a set system. Like, everyone's sort of replaceable, even the manager as well. Like, Sorry, Sally, you were saying about Brentford and about how they could become a feeder club for you. I think Rico Henry would be a good shout at left-back for competition for Matt Target as well. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I think the the next sort of step naturally for us is sort of strength in depth because we've got a really good starting eleven. but after that, we've probably got three or four players. But if we really want to compete towards the top of the table, we'll need to bring in some, you know, some like some people that can really push the sort of first teamers. You get a lot of people that say that, oh, how are you going to sign so-and-so like Sanson? He's not going to want to sit on the bench every week, but the whole point is you bring him in to sort of sort of challenge that midfielder for his spot and that will improve his standards and obviously he'll get his chance and he'll get to perform. Um, people sort of don't factor in that, you know, anyone can get injured at any time as well. Like if you look at what's happened at Liverpool, for example, like they'd, they'd have probably like, you know, they'd do anything to sort of go back in time now and sign, I don't know, maybe Ben White or someone like that. You, you know, it's it's not... It's not straightforward, is it, putting a, a squad of players together? You, you know, you need your squad of, it's a Premier League squad of 25 or whatever. But also, you know, in the transfer window, you probably want to try and sign players who are going to be starting players. So you probably, I know it sounds a bit obvious, but you want to probably look at the areas that you feel that might be weak and sign players to go in as starting players if you possibly can. And obviously, in the Premier League, they don't come cheap. You know, they, they don't. It's a little bit like, you know, Newcastle signed uh, Callum Wilson, and he would start normally. Jeff Hendrick, and he would probably start. The left-back, um, Jamal Lewis, looked to yeah. start. And then what it does is those players who were in that position, they'll be become they'll have less minutes they'll become squad players they might actually step up and have a battle with that player and and you know and, and overtake or get back into the team or, or like you say there might be an injury but you know when you you know when you're signing players no player really I've, I've never met any player that wants to sit on the bench regularly uh, you know on a Saturday or whenever the games are played because they're on every single day but you know People have to realise that it is a squad game. You know, there's a lot of, I mean, the fixture congestion this year has just been, you know, it's been worse than any other particular year. So you're relying on your squad. When you talked about Liverpool, I actually think, you know, that challenge of uh, Jordan Pickford on Van Dijk, when was it? Back in early December, was it even? It was before that. Yeah, November, November. November. Yeah, I, I was a little bit surprised that Liverpool didn't just get a... I know it's just as an easy word to say, but I'm surprised Liverpool 
on the 1st of January didn't have a reinforcement to come in. The perhaps the thinking obviously was, well, we've got Matip, we've got Joe Gomez, we've got another good young player coming through. Let's just see how we go. But he, you know, losing Van Dijk was such a pivotal moment for me to, to, to not sign on the 1st of January. And it's easier said than done. And to sign two young players at the last and the last day of, of the window, you know, that's a month that's possibly seven or eight fixtures gone. I don't think it was the right thing to do, but what do I know? See, like, sort of it works, it works both ways because if they weren't sort of going to sign somebody by that 1st of January day, I think they could have sort of blooded in a youngster from earlier on, sort of from back when the Van Dyke injury happened. They could have sort of done better to, you know, integrate because if anything, Klopp sort of, in my opinion, I think he's being stubborn playing two central midfielders in that role. Like, okay, they've, they've done fairly well, you could say. But maybe if they would have sort of brought through one of their kids who was, you know, that had high potential, they could have sort of unearthed sort of like a gem or they could have sort of well, fast-tracked his like progress. It's not guaranteed, obviously. Nothing's guaranteed no. in football. But if they weren't going to sign somebody, they could have sort of given that player that exposure. And a compromise at midfield as well, taking out two of the holding midfielders. It's, it's just been a regression from Liverpool ever since. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, you don't know what the conversations they were having within the club and within the recruitment department. It might have been that the consensus was, we'll be okay, we've got enough in the building to cover us. And then they've had another injury on top of that, haven't they? And so then they've gone all... And, and, and to be honest, that's how... You know, that's how things can happen, in, a, in particularly when a window's opening or a window's already open. You know, if an injury happens, you can respond to it. If it happens like Callum Wilson for Newcastle, that's it. If you go with what you've got. Because even with um, title challenging teams, you mentioned it last week as well. When you buy players just to fill the squad, the starting players don't really see that as a challenge. And then they end up just losing their game as well. So they end up thinking, this guy's not going to challenge me anytime soon. But... Tony, how would you have managed it if you were at Preston North End and they signed um, Ben Davis from you at Liverpool? Would you have held up for a bit more? Would that still have been one of the better options just to sell him on that final day if they had a replacement going? And I don't know, but I've never understood that personally. You know, when you're like a lower team and someone's coming in for one of your players on deadline day, do you mm. cash in for the money because you need it in a pandemic? Or is it more along the lines of we can survive for another six months before the next transfer window comes through and blood a youngster through. That's something that well, I've always been curious about personally. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's, it's like, what is the, your business model? What's your business model? So if you go back to Brentford, Brentford are happy to buy players in young players, develop them and then sell them on, or they're happy at the moment to do that. That's yep. their, you know, they've, they've traded so, so well. And if you look at the figures, people that they've bought and sold, you know, that's... So if they get a, a bid at the last day of the window, then obviously you know that the club's desperate, the club's desperate who's coming in to bid because it's the last day of the window. I think one of the examples that I, I really talk about is the... I don't know whether any, any of the guys have seen Sunderland Till I Die, the, the, the documentary about Sunderland. Yeah, on Netflix. On Netflix, yeah, there's a, there's a great piece where now their their top striker was Josh Madger, and he gets he gets sold for one and a half million early in the January transfer window when he's top scorer in the team, but his contract's coming to an end. So they take the view that he could just see out his contract, we get no money at the end. So why don't we just take a million and a half now, right? Yeah. And then we see a couple of episodes later, we see the, the, the managing director on the phone haggling about the price of Will Grigg with, um, where did he come from? Was it Wigan? Wigan. Wigan. And, yeah. and he ends up, so he ends up paying 3 million plus 1 million add-on if they get promoted for Will Grigg. So in those two transactions, he's already a million and a half down, Right. And I would also argue that Josh Madge is the better option of the two. And as it as it proves now, and I, I don't want to be smart in hindsight, but that's what I thought at the time. Josh Madge, there probably would have been better just to have said to Josh Madge's agent, he's not going anywhere. 
if he has to leave on on a free in the summer, well, so be it. We're sticking with him. He's going to score us the goals. He's going to get us promoted. And we're going to save a million and a half, aren't we? Because we're not having to buy anybody yeah. else. And probably Wills Griggs' wages were a little bit higher than Josh Madge's as well. Yeah. So anyway, kick on a year or two, 18 months or whatever it is. Or is it a year? I can't remember. Year and a half, uh, I think. It's January. Josh Madge's, yeah, Josh Madge is now on loan at Fulham, scoring two goals in the Premier League. And where's Will Grigg? So, you know, when you ask about what are the reasons behind the club's selling in a January window, there can be numerous. Obviously, everyone, if you look at the transfer activity in the summer, a lot of the championship clubs, I think there was only Brentford and maybe one other who had any significant transfers. A lot of the, in the summer activity, a lot of the activity was outgoings. So there was a lot of people selling players and then not reinvesting that money. So Birmingham sold a very good young player to Borussia, was it Dortmund? Dortmund, yeah. Who else sold? There was quite a few clubs sold players. I'm just trying to think of who else sold because there was quite Norwich a number. sold Ben Godfrey to Everton. And they yeah, sold Jamal that. Lewis oh, to Newcastle. Jamal yeah. Lewis, yeah. Yeah, so there was quite, I think there was about half of the championship clubs sold players for decent money and didn't splash it out on other players. They kept it and thought, listen, we're going through a sticky time here. What's happening with the pandemic? It's costing us money. Let's you know, sell a couple of assets. And so in January, he's another opportunity. Clubs are expecting fans to be back in September. That hasn't happened. People are cash-strapped. It's a buyer's market. So if you're selling, I mean, I couldn't believe any player who was worthy of going to Liverpool would be two million quid or three million quid, whatever the transfer fee was. And, yeah. you know, we, we know in the business, if anything's in the paper, the buying club, that want it, in, you know, lower, the, the, the selling club want it inflated. You know, the, the figures aren't accurate and they're usually with add-ons and sell-ons and all that. And only the people who are involved in the deal from both clubs know the actual numbers that are involved. But I'm, you know, I was so surprised to see any player going to Liverpool for, for such a low amount of money. And then two or three days later, they announced that the centre back, the other centre back, was out for a longer injury than people had expected. So, you know, there were the really needed to buy a centre half. So maybe that price could have been pushed up a little bit if the you know, I mean, Liverpool can go and what player wouldn't want to go to Liverpool? Yeah. And that's the other aspect. If if Liverpool come knocking on your door and you're a player who's playing in, in, a, in a good championship club, but it's Liverpool, of course I'm going to want to go there. You know, of course I'm going to want to sign for Liverpool. You know, not notwithstanding, you know, the financial rewards that are there, but it's, it's, you know, it's a lifetime opportunity. You're in the Premier League. You're in the best league in the world. It's it's something to tell your grandkids. I've played at Anfield. Wow. Do you know, it's a massive, it's a massive deal. And I don't mean the financial sense. I mean, you know, you try stopping me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think, like, the, the thing is, when it sometimes comes to sort of football and, like, fans as well, like, some, sometimes, like, some of us forget that, you know, that, they're humans at the end of the day like yeah, there's more absolutely. to it than just like oh look you know I don't understand why anyone would want to go Liverpool but it could have been a <laughs> dream move and, no, yeah. but it, it could be his dream move for example and then like a lot of people also forget reasons for players wanting to stay at clubs especially like if they've got families and you know kids that yeah. go to school and stuff they wouldn't want to unsettle them by moving abroad for example yeah for sure, for sure. absolutely I think, and like you I said, think there's you... a lot behind it like you know there's a lot more than yeah. just a player like it's different when you're playing FIFA football manager where you know you just sign somebody and he goes somewhere but there's like so much more to it well well I, I sort of say you know if if you're a sort of British based player and you've grown up in Manchester or London or wherever You'll have supported a team. It might be a team that's local to you. You might be wanting to go to that club at some point in your career, if you possibly can. And you might have family there. And if you've got kids, it's easier schools and family to be around. And you pro probably don't really want to necessarily go abroad somewhere. I mean, the young men who've gone to Germany recently, the top English UK talent who've gone to Germany, They've been real trailblazers, you know. It's really good to see people going to different countries, trying a different league, 
different culture. They're doing ever so well over there. But a lot of a lot of players will just want to stay in this country. It's a great league. You can go very, very high. Everyone wants to come to England at some point, I'm sure. But but when you take a foreign player, for example, let's say a player from France, he has no particular geographical affiliation with this country. He'd probably like to be in London because it's glittery and it's nice lights and all that sort of stuff. But really, if Aston Villa come in for him, so be it. It's the Premier League he's coming for. It's the football he's coming for. And he probably doesn't have that geographical pull or fan loyalty as a kid growing up pull that somebody like Jack Grealish has. You know, and I, I suppose Jack Grealish is a great example because isn't he a Villa fan and he's, you know, one club man so far and there probably will have been offers in at some point from yeah. so-called, you know, the, the teams that regularly play in the Champions League. And, and is it better to... To, to do what he's doing or is it better to try and go Champions League England da di da di da I, you know it's the at the end of the day it's not the agent's decision it's not really the club's decision it's the player's decision where he wants to go and where he wants to where he sees himself he might think let's get Villa in the Champions League let me yeah. do my stuff where I'm happy I'm settled got a good head coach, you know, the fans rate him, the fans rave about him, you know, let's do it with Villa. And that would be refreshing, you know, because, you know, in my, what I see in the game, there isn't a lot of loyalty and that goes mm. both sides, clubs, players, you know, you are in a career, it is a business, you are trying to maximise your career as a player and that's what the agent's job is as well and get them in the right place, get them as high as they possibly can go in the football pyramid. Because I was saying um, to Salim, because Salim's a Villa fan before, uh, he took me to a Villa game when we were both living in Birmingham to watch Villa versus Derby. And Villa were cash-strapped at the time. This is when they're going through administration problems and ownership problems. And Aston Villa won 4-0. And it was one of their big games on the way to the playoff final when Jack Grealish scored an excellent goal that day. But I remember in that same Jan- January transfer window, Spurs bid three million pounds for him, and then yeah, I was yeah, like, no, "Sorry, that, so no, that that was basically in the summer, yeah, yeah, in the summer before, just before the new owners came in, we had that unpaid tax bill, so they sort of bid three million and on him on loan or something." Oh, really? And he would have just been another attacking midfielder in that Arsenal of, of yeah, in the attacking Arsenal of Tottenham. Deli Ali was there. You'd had Eriksen there as well, and you had. He was just going to be another player for them, and he may not have carried on um, with his development and the player that we see yeah, now. Absolutely. Well, Chelsea, Chelsea seem to be stockpiling creative midfielders, don't they? You know, they've, I think they've got about five or six of them. And how do you keep all them players happy? It's it's a tough task, I think. Yeah, and the I best one is an academy important. player from like Mason Mount. Prime example is is yeah, out, like is outshining the 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 expensive talents like Ziyech and Havertz and. It's really nice to see, and I'm really happy that he's doing really well as an England fan because we're going to yeah. see him in the Euros. Well, Mount with Grealish and Foden, hopefully, all, if they're all fit and pick for the squad. Yeah, but. sorry, I was just going to add that. Like people just think that if you sign six, like six world-class players, you're going to sort of win everything. But I mean, Chelsea is just like a good example that it's not just about sort of signing players; it's about you know building a team and you know, having like a, you know, you should have like a transfer plan, really. Like for, for me, Chelsea didn't look like they had a plan. They just wanted to sign like, you know, some big players to make up for their missed windows. And, and that was it really. Like there might've been long-term targets that they were chasing, which is fair enough. Like there's a clear link between the Havertz and the, the Werner signings. But ultimately, I don't mm. see how they've sort of, like, I just don't see a tactical plan behind the signings. That's the problem with I've seen with Chelsea. Like they keep changing the shape, you know, and, there's not been much consistency. Obviously, with the new manager coming in, that could change now. He's already played a couple of different systems as well, Tuchel. Has he? I, yeah. I haven't seen much of Chelsea since he arrived, but he's obviously set his stall out and he, I think they got three clean sheets, didn't they, to begin with, yeah. which, um, which has always been sort of a bit of an issue. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Looking from the outside, it, it didn't look, you know, they looked like they signed too many 
of them creative players. And obviously, Ross Bar- Barkley had to come out and go on loan somewhere because of that, you know. So that's and Villa's game, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah I really like Loftus Cheek. I think he's been a little bit unlucky with injuries because I think when he played for England, I mean, it'll be a few seasons ago now. Well, he was he, he looked terrific, didn't he? He looked absolutely yeah. terrific. Well, he went he went to the World Cup, so he can't be yeah. half bad. <laughs> no, absolutely no. But he, you know, he looked like he. I don't know what the injury was that he got, but he looked like he was developing into a real top top class midfielder. And here's another one of those players that I don't want to see on loan anymore. I just want to see him break through at a team rather Chelsea or somewhere else as well. But again, relating to Tony, relating to Banford, these players that have gone on the loan system and they've benefited from it. Hopefully they yeah. can end up benefiting in the right way and kick on with a, an actual club that they're actually playing for, which would be really nice to see. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the loan system, you know, because the Premier League is so tough, it's a, you know, it's a top league, I'll... I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's no, you know, it's not going to be everyone who comes and signs for a, a Premier League club who's going to be able to be at the level. And it, that, and also that makes it harder for the young players who are in the system to get up to that level because, you know, they might need a League One loan, they might need a couple of championship loans before they're ready and they, they can really cope with, the demands of the Premier League, it's just that high. You know, back in my day when I was at Leeds, probably the first division was more like the championship in terms of quality. Now we've got this extra league bolted on, the Premier League, which is a world-class league, on top of our championship. So if you can take the analogy there, how more, how much more difficult is it for the young players to get, into that top echelon it's really difficult and and that's why you know a lot of them don't make it at that grade and then a lot of them have to go out on loan you know two or three loans to get to the level you know so if you I suppose you know we talked about Ivan Tony earlier he did it in league one he's doing it in championship and then the, the obvious next step is the Premier League but it's taken him that progression to get up there and when you you look at Jamie Vardy, who was sort of spat out of the system from Sheffield Wednesday, ended up at Stocksbridge Steelers, Halifax, Fleetwood, Leicester in the Championship. And then what he's done, it's incredible, isn't it? Exactly the same with yeah. Harry Kane as well. When he was at Norwich, when he was at Leicester, Leighton Orient, he had a couple of those spells when he was out. And Spurs fans were like, I don't even want, I don't think this guy's ever going to make the grade. And there's that classic yeah. tweet of, Harry Kate being a one-season wonder because he did really well when they had Adibayo and Soldado as their other strikers, but he's been like a, an eight-season wonder, which is a running joke. At the moment. <laughs> and again, us as England fans, we've we've seen our country get to a semi-final for yeah. our generation, anyway. Like that's something I can happily say, and I'm really happy with how England's youngsters are developing. Yeah, I was going to say we spoke about this on an earlier episode that the kids aren't getting much chances to play, but. A part of it is sort of the pressure that's on the managers these days. Like the thing is, a manager might want to be sort of crying out new players and like some of the kids. But the problem is, is if he loses four or five games, then his job's gone, and there's not much sort of scope for experimenting or giving kids a go. So like the best yeah. thing is to sort of like not even loans is probably just to permanently move to sort of you know a championship or a league one team and and just develop from there because. Like if, if like if you take Grealish for an example, he had one loan at Notts County, which was probably better than playing in the reserves for him. And when he came back, he yeah. was sort of like just ready made. So I think a lot more of the players that are in like the reserves and stuff, they should probably look to just get a transfer out. I mean, if you look at Liverpool, they could have easily just given one of their defenders a chance, but they've decided to play not even one midfielder, but two midfielders in defence rather than give them a chance. Yeah, I, I do like I do like the loan system though. I, I think. You know, it is it is good for young players to go out and play, and you know, and and I can understand why you know the, the Premier League clubs want to keep hold of a, a good young player and help him develop, you know, and get that game time and get the opportunities to play. I think it's a balancing act because you know you don't want to go to a club and and not play. The twenty threes, a lot of people say it's not the twenty threes under twenty threes football is not the same as you know, playing in a proper competitive yeah. game with a with 
well, when we had fans back in the stadium, but with fans in the stadium. So for me, it's it's a bit of a, you know, it's a balancing act. And I, and I think if you're at the right club and you're playing and you're developing and, you know, you get, you're improving season on season, you'll get there, won't you? Hopefully you'll get there. And just in the podcast, Tony, we'll just have a conversation with yourself about your beloved club, Leeds United. So it's not, it's not, it's not like, <laughs> You know, when I was a kid, I was a big Leeds fan. When when you're in the sort of business, you sort of get a little bit. Is it just like, yeah, that's the team I, I used to support, but not anymore. I've got to stay not, neutral. No, no, not 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 neutral, but yeah, a bit like that. A bit yeah, like, like that. No, yeah. it's just because even with them, Leeds United as well, um, they've got so many shrewd signings that they've had over the years, and they've done really well for them, and they've come through the academy. A positive business model that they've got going on as well, because like Salim said. When he when you get the transfer policy right, everyone will play for the manager. And they've got yeah. players from Portugal, they've got players from France and Germany over the summer who have ended up doing really well in their team so far. And for people teams to forget, they are a promoted team and they are a team that have literally come from the championship and they're like eleventh, twelfth place and play some yeah. expansive football to say the least as well. So can you see more teams from the championship kind of following Leeds' model in terms of playing their own brand of football coming through, a bit like Swansea when they came up first, a bit like Wolverhampton Wanderers. Is that the way to go? I think there's two interesting points to talk about Leeds, really. One is they've got a, a sporting director and a, and a very distinctive and very well-respected and very individual head coach who plays his own style and has his own beliefs. Um, and them two together plus with the, the new ownership group that took over about, what was it, two or three years now. You know, it's a very strong offer, those three individuals. So Radiziani, Victor Orta and uh, Bielsa. So Victor Orta was one of the disciples of Mon... Have you heard of Monchi, who's... Uh, he's no, the, he's Monchi, Monchi is the sort of one of the best he's, he's talked about in terms of one of the best sporting directors in the world he's at Sevilla he's been at other clubs but his transfer record if you have a look at what they're doing in Sevilla is it's quite incredible the amounts of players that are signed are successful and then move on for big fees so Victor Orta was working under him there he then went to um to Zenith St. Petersburg and then Middlesbrough with Ito Karanka and then to Leeds United. But he's got a very successful track record in the transfer business and is good at what he does, aided by a very, very successful and, and very well-respected head coach. So that mixture and, and the fact that Leeds have always, since my day, you know, what a good academy they have, and, and they've always produced players at Leeds, um, having them coming through the academy. Um, and, and those things, you know, have really just, that's that's why they're, they're doing well in the Premier League as a newly promoted side. They've stuck to the sort of ethos, they've stuck to the guns and it's going well, you know, it is going well. I, I, I know they got beat the other night, but it's going really well. Um, I think your first season in the Premier League, you just want to not be involved in a relegation battle and then you've had a good season, really. You want to be, you know, anywhere from 15th upwards, if you possibly can, and out of the, the danger area uh, for as long as you can. And then what will be, which is what Salim was talking about with Villa, was what happens in the summer? How do you build on that? How do you strengthen that? How do you make that better? Because the second season can be really, really hard, as some as some of the clubs are finding out. You know, the second season, everyone's had a chance to play you. Everyone's seen what you do twice minimum. You know, the, they all know what you what to expect when the company. You're no longer the um, surprise package, if you like. They know your weaknesses. They know your strengths. And you know, they've they've had a good year to have a look at you. And, and now it's, it's a different proposition when you're coming up against them in the next year. And, um, you know, that if Leeds do stay mid-table and, and, and have a good season, that'll be great. Do you reckon they'll get any higher than mid-table, given the current climate in the Premier League? I, I don't think so, no. I'm, I don't know where they are at the moment. What, what, do you know which, which position they're in at the moment? I think they're 11th. 
Yeah, like 11th, 13th. Yeah, which is very, very respectable, isn't it? I mean, it's great. I think, in the I think that's league. great great for the first season back. And I think, I don't know if you'd agree with this one, Tony, but I was sort of thinking about something and um, there's two parts to it. So the first part is I think that this Villa team that we've got at the moment is sort of better than the 0-9-10 one that we had under Martin O'Neill. But on top of that, the other part I'd say is that I think that the standard of the league is higher than it was sort of 10 years ago because I think like before you'd have like your standard top four, which were, you know, the usual top four. And then you've got, you know, your three teams pushing, but nobody else was as good. But nowadays you've got teams that like pretty much every team can buy a 50 million pound striker, for example. Every team can, you know, pretty much every team in the league can spend 100 million pounds. And I, I think that it's just become so difficult now like that top 12 is, I just, I yeah. just think it's the, the league just gone so far forward as in the yeah, gap between I, the, the top of the Prem, like even the middle, like even like the lower end of the Prem and the championship is massive compared to how it was 10 years ago. Yeah, no, I, I do, I do tend to agree with you. I think you'd do well to get 100 million spent at Burnley. You know, you'd be, Sean Dyche would be, you know, really lucky man if he got that to spend. But, but what I, I do agree with you because I think, so it's the strength and depth of the Premier League. I think when you look at um, a top league in Spain, you've got some really, really big clubs and then you've sort of got quite small clubs that aren't getting the big players. That There's some teams there that would really struggle in the Premier League, isn't there, in, in, in the Spanish mm-hmm. league. But when you look at our, our league, you know, anyone can beat anyone. That's that's sort of goes without saying. And, and it just makes for a really competitive um, competition. Whether it's better than, I can't really remember the Martin O'Neill team of Villa, but you probably will. But whether they're better, I think they must be better. I think, you know, the players um, athletically have improved so much um, tactically. And, and I, I do put it down a lot of the foreign managers coming in. I think we've improved, and and also the the academy system where the, the coaching has been improved with the um, things that were happening around the uh, E Triple P. That plan has really come to fruition with some, and we're producing some really good young players that you know the envy of other countries, which is a, a really good benchmark. So. I do agree with you. Yes, it has improved. And, and I think those so-called big clubs who are, you know, regularly in the top four or five places, you know, I think that's becoming less this season only because of the crowds, I think, as well. I think, mm. you know, that, that the home and away bias that your, your stadium, your crowd, your fortress can bring is, isn't really there this year. And it's, it, it is a bit of an odd turnaround of events you know we're still seeing obviously City at the top and the usual suspects are there or thereabouts but I think it has been a funny season all in all. Sorry I'd add to that as well like I think there's been quite a bit of a change in terms of structure as well before it was a bit more sort of rigid where you just have like a manager like we had Martin O'Neill for example and he was in charge of everything at the club Mm -hmm. every single thing in the club went through him whereas now it's a lot different sort of We've got like, you know, our head coach, we've got our sporting director, we've got, you know, people doing different bits. There's sort of a more push towards like data analytics and that kind of thing. Because the thing is, like the game comes down to sort of fine margins. Like if we look back to that playoff final for Brentford, what is it, 150 million pound game or something. And the goal was that free kick from Joe Bryan. But the the thing that people miss is that Fulham were sort of analysing uh, the keeper's positioning and he has this sort of aggressive positioning that he does use to defend free kicks. They, sort of uh, Fulham have obviously like analysed this and they've said that we're going to try catch him out at one point. And he just shows that one of the coaches must have picked this up or one of the data analytic yeah. team members must have picked this up and that's won them this £150 million game. Whereas I think that in the past that probably would not have been caught out like that. It, it probably yeah. might, it may have been picked up, it may not have, but there's more chance of sort of like picking up these small things, which, because yeah. the thing is like in football, like one goal can change, like every, you could lose a playoff final and, you know, things can go really badly for you. Obviously for Brentford, it's not been too bad after all, but it just shows the sort of destiny of two clubs can be affected by the smallest of things. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and, and that's what makes it exciting, these small margins, doesn't it? You know, it's like 
I think it was Dave Brailsford, wasn't it, who was always looking for that extra, you know, one tenth of a second to improve his cyclists. And if you find only one thing that improves by one tenth, well, you've improved a little bit. But if you find several little things that improve you by a second, that second can be, you know, winning the Tour de France or winning a stage. You know, there can be the difference in that, can't it? So it's that, you know, the marginal gains he talks about. But yeah, everyone's looking at, they're looking at every single angle that they can use to their advantage to try and deliver what they want, which is success on the pitch. And whether it's in in the tactics, in the, the preparation of players, in the, the, the mental mentality of the players, it, it's what the head coach is saying, it's what the recruitment department are doing, who they're bringing in. You know, all of these things, there's a, a lot, they're under massive scrutiny at football clubs because there's big numbers being spent on, on human beings, you know, so everything that goes, you know, every club, you know, the biggest, the biggest expense in a club is the players wages, isn't it? And transfer fees. That's yeah. the biggest expense. So that's the area that you really need to be smart on, you know, to improve your, your, your players, to help your players, help the team. And if you can do that with all sorts of, um, if, if technology can help, great. If stats can help, great. If data can help, great. Sports psychologists, great. You know, and, and football clubs now, I mean, if you if you think 10, 15 years ago, the staff of a football Premier League football club now is a lot bigger than it ever was. And, and I think that's what you're talking about, Salim, to be honest. So I think what we'll do is we'll end it there. I wanted to say on behalf of Friday Night Counter Attack, thank you very much for coming on to the show, Tony. It has honestly been such a pleasure to listen to you and to learn from you. I think I'll say on behalf of everyone, that's not, you know, we have four other people here, but I'd really like to do a part two in the future. So obviously ask a a lot more about yourself, learn a lot more from yourself and from the Football Transfer Forum, because I found it fascinating. Salim, I hope you had a, a nice time learning from Tony and Tony I hope you've enjoyed being on the podcast with us. yeah I enjoyed it I've enjoyed it yeah no problem and I'd like to do part two if there is one and yeah have, have yeah, a little look out for what we're doing now I've, I've sent yeah. the link to everyone on the group so hopefully there's more if there's more you can just send it to me on LinkedIn and I'll share it around but thank you very much for your time we know you've yeah. had a long day and a busy day with Zoom no so thank you very much for your time everyone listening yeah. uh, give us a thumbs up and take care